Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about parental controls, things my parents tried to steer me and my siblings from. to find out if the process of recording an inappropriate conversations podcast is anything like riding a bike. There's the old adage of being able to pick something up quickly if it's a learned skill. Uh, it's just like riding a bike. Well, it has been a very long time since I've recorded a new inappropriate conversations podcast, and I feel like I should acknowledge that right up front. I'm getting back into the swing of things. This is the first new Inappropriate Conversations recording since October 2nd of 2018. And uh, that's a heck of a gap. The uh, It was the recap show for the Pride 48 New Orleans event that had happened a couple of months earlier. And like all the Pride 48 events that I've done podcasts around, I called it Proud to Know You. This one was Proud to Know You 3 Beyond Superdome because Pride 48 that year was at the Holiday Inn Superdome in downtown New Orleans as it will be this year as well. I'll talk about more of that as we get deeper into uh, Inappropriate Conversations podcast for this summer. But at Pride48.com, there is all the information you'd need to know about uh, registering and uh, signing up, making hotel accommodation reservations, and participating in Pride48 this year. It's in New Orleans in the same spot. So if you wanted my point of view about how that went last year, that's Inappropriate Conversations number 214 from October of 2018. When I decided to get back on the uh, new podcast release track, it started with Walk the Earth. And I think I'll just make a quick nod to that Walk the Earth episode that came out last month. It was the material that I released new when I got back on things. That was March 11th of 2019, Walk the Earth number 54. And I feel really strongly about this question. Um, it was the kind of focus of a lot of my attention all the way through January and February as I was preparing to get back to recording. And because of that, Walk the Earth ended up coming out first. Whether progressive emphasis on affirming churches is even sufficient. And I, it may be a new direction for the Walk the Earth podcast as I begin to take a look, uh, not just at the process of switching churches, which is how that spinoff podcast began, or the uh, questions that come up when you're joining a new community and switching denominations. This may be bigger, more aggressive, future-looking questions to say, hey, if the uh, Protestant church in America achieves the goals I think that it could potentially achieve in taking down barriers and open, opening its doors and finally reaching out in full reconciliation, not just in the racial reconciliation, but also toward the LGBTQ community, what might happen in that future state? And that's what Walk the Earth 54 was looking at. But uh, for this one, Inappropriate Conversations, the only thing I'll say on an intro is that I'm aware of the fact that at the website, inappropriateconversations.org, I have like three pages where if you scroll and do the previous button and the previous button again, there's a lot of talkback episodes. I started in November of last year with some things related to the Advent holiday season, just kept going with Christmas-related Christmas shows from the past, and then in January, I just kind of got, got in my head that I needed to restate one of the manifestos of, of the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, 
when it comes to the religion side of, of the ledger. Now, Inappropriate Conversations is always going to be about a combination of religion, politics, popular culture, and nostalgia. This one will have some nostalgia in it. But I thought maybe I should release what uh, was once a three-and-a-half-hour podcast in much smaller pieces, hour-long or less pieces, and made a six-pack of talkbacks out of that show. If uh, On the thought that maybe, first off, the talkback idea seemed to work during the holidays, but also it might be a way of getting the uh, information out there. The answer to the question of just who is this Greg guy and how is how is his worldview different from most of what you hear from Christianity? And that took care of the religious side of the perspective. I may ignore a politics here for a couple of episodes as I work through some pre-planned material, but it's hard to imagine getting all the way through calendar year 2019 without some talk about politics. There seems to be plenty going on. And the shorthand of it all is that um, when it comes to politics, I consider myself to be a radical moderate, uh, neither truly genuinely conservative or liberal, certainly neither Republican or Democrat in the in the traditional sense of those terms, and finding myself often uh, the equivalent of kind of a man without a country in the sense that I can't just uh, you know, lazily align myself with a political party. Historically, I've never been a vote-a-straight-ticket kind of guy anyway, although sometimes in the interest of protecting the country from uh, some serious constitutional threats, you've got to do what you've got to do. On the religion side, I was christened as a Catholic, raised initially by going both to Catholic Church and United Methodist Church. When I go back to my memories and get to the point where I'm old enough to remember going to church, old enough to remember church buildings, uh, most of those were in the same city with churches that were only just a couple blocks apart. And I, I can recall going to Catholic Mass with my father and sometimes with my father and his mother on Saturdays in the late afternoons, early evenings, and going to church with the entire family, the entire mom, mom, dad, me and my siblings on Sunday mornings. And that pattern went on for a while. And when it came time for what the equivalent of a first communion decision would be, I decided to go with the Protestant direction and have been a Protestant ever since. But I do have uh, an element of both Protestant and Catholic in my background. I have a religious studies minor from when I was in college. Uh, It seemed like the right kind of thing to do to round out the bachelor's degree I was pursuing, to have uh, some a minor degree in political science, a minor degree in religious studies, among other things. And that minor degree in religious studies was very focused on world religions. It was kind of taking my own faith for granted and saying, I'm not necessarily going to learn about Christianity. I'm not pursuing some sort of ordination in Protestant Christianity. I'm kind of taking that as a given, and I'm trying to learn the rest of the story from a world religion perspective. The the way I've told it before, even recently in some of the previews of the talkbacks, where instead of just putting an old episode out uh, as is, I usually did some introduction, shared some thoughts, including some thoughts that were, were relatively current and new. But one of those thoughts in one of the recent talkback episodes was to kind of remind myself that even at the very beginning of this Inappropriate Conversations show... I call myself a creature from another planet, and I think that's probably pretty accurate. There's a lot of ways where I don't fit directly in. I've got a round peg, square hole kind of syndrome, and and I'm perfectly fine with that. And I'm wondering if part of that doesn't connect back to my upbringing in certain ways. I've got things in in my childhood years that I'm not 100% sure I can explain, things that my parents, for whatever reason, found problematic, risky, or objectionable, that they were very careful to steer us away from. 
and other things that they didn't find problematic at all. Now, careful listeners to Inappropriate Conversations, and even just the Inappropriate Conversations podcast alone, we're talking about 214 past episodes that run in length. Uh, the, the far end extreme is three and a half hours. The short end is 25 minutes. But even if the average is less than an hour, that's a lot of hours. So I'm not presuming anybody's heard everything before. I will try not to dwell on things that I've gone into detail about before. But some of these stories I've hit in the past because they have consistently kind of come up in my memory. When you're a father raising young kids, and of course now my children, my children are in their 20s, but when you're a father raising young kids, there's certain decisions that you end up making. You end up having to decide how did your father, and for that matter, your next door, your next door neighbor and all your other friends' fathers, how did they manage things like printed magazine pornography, you know? Were there uh, regular mailbox deliveries of things like Playboy or Penthouse? Were there convenience store purchases of Penthouse letters, compendiums, and things of that nature? And were those things in the house? And what did I, what do I take from my awareness of those things at a fairly young age? And what do I want to do about the fact that I've got memories of that? And what if I don't want my kids to have memories of that too? So decisions of those natures that came up, so we were at a house where it wasn't that unusual growing up for my mother to have not just novels, but Harold Robbins types of novels. So that if you were reading beyond just your own grade level and moving in a direction that maybe escaped the confines of the Reader's Digest condensed book version of novels and going over toward where, where your parents' paperbacks were on the bookshelf, you might encounter things that you would find surprising. Right. And my dad probably had uh, the Happy Hooker uh, novelizations. I don't know if you'd want to call those biographies or not, but the Xavier Hollander books. And I say books plural because I believe there was more than one. So if you were an interested or curious reader, you might encounter a lot of materials. So we'll talk a little bit about books and the things that made my my parents uncomfortable when it came to books. We'll, I'll deal with music and movies. But to me, the best example is probably television shows. That my parents uh, not only did not have a problem with me and my sisters, uh, my brother, I think, was probably uh, old enough to be working, so wasn't around a lot on Tuesday nights, or maybe he was already in college. But my parents had no problem with, with TV shows like Three's Company. I think their worldview, and I think it was it kind of was consistent for my wife growing up as well, that her parents sort of had this idea that network TV was safe, and that almost anything network TV wanted to do was going to be a better answer than some of the things when cable came out. I can pretty much remember the day that we got cable TV. I also can remember the day we got Pong the first time, too. Similar memories in many ways. Something very new and very different was coming to that television set. And the day you get cable TV for the first time, you've expanded from what I'd say is four channels where I lived. You had your major networks of ABC, NBC, CBS, and then PBS as the public broadcasting option. Four channels was pretty much it, and then all of a sudden, that grew to almost 40. So you almost add a digit to the end of what the broadcasting choices are, but my parents were extremely wary of anything that wasn't the traditional network. They probably had heard stories about uh, public access television in New York City um, and the variety of things that were being broadcast from an almost amateur kind of production perspective there, and they didn't want that. They were very careful to make sure that we were a household that did not have HBO or uh, later Cinemax or Showtime or any of those other things that 
they were going to show restricted movies and there was going to be nudity and violence and language and they just they wanted no part of that. I do remember at times being steered away from television broadcast of theatrical films where even the best effort to edit them for TV, either for time or for things like nudity and violence, that you could only do such a good job that you couldn't get you couldn't get a perfect made for TV cut of something like Rosemary's Baby. And so a movie like Rosemary's Baby was strictly forbidden, despite the fact that it was arguably cleaned up for television. The horror movie content, the satanic character in the in the movie itself, the prominent role of witches as characters in the movie, and the um, you know parental warning advisory that was at the beginning of that broadcast ruled it out every time. So the same thing that made them not want us to have access to HBO also made them very careful about TV movies. That's just sort of my mom and dad's mentality. And the one place they drew the line, though, the one time I can remember, the same people who were totally okay with us watching Three's Company and the sexual-related humor there was Soap. And I found, initially, their objections to the TV show Soap confusing on multiple fronts. One was that, as a family, we'd never seen it. I was aware of the fact that they really hadn't had an opportunity to see an episode of the show. So it's not like we watched it and decided to stop watching. That didn't happen. And it, it would have happened at, you know, from time to time along the way, whether a, a new uh, television debut was just not interesting to us, or there was something that my parents found problematic about the content. The ban on watching the TV sitcom Soap was preemptive. And I have no doubt in my mind why. I'm just slow playing the reveal. But I'm doing so because of the irony that the the content about gay characters or homosexuality in Three's Company as a sitcom was not problematic. Where that element of having an openly gay character in a sitcom for the TV series Soap was problematic. I think that gives us a pretty good hint into how my parents chose to exercise parental controls, how I've done it differently as an adult, we'll get to that in just a second, and what it reveals. Because I would say that that generation, as a whole, is still living with a worldview that they think the right parental controls for our entire society. If they were given mom and dad rights over every man, woman, and child in this country, including the adults in this country, one of the things I think they would say is that they are okay with drama and comedy based on people pretending to be gay, but they have zero tolerance whatsoever for people being honest about their sexuality. The church in America today, and I say church writ large, it's not just Christianity, but it certainly isn't just the Christianity I encounter. This is more prevalent, or at least as prevalent, in Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy as it is in any uh, evangelical Protestant church. There's a lot of, in other words, unfortunate similarities there that they really just are obsessed with people lying to them. We have seen the religious right in America have a freakout here in the last four or five years that is disproportionate to maybe ten years before that. Now, there have been times when the religious right has gone on an unmitigated witch hunt toward gay and lesbian people. But I think what brought it out here in recent years is this whole concept of marriage equality, that <clears throat> there's just something about people being honest about who they are and comfortably open enough about it to actually get married. <clears throat> that sort of set people off. And it was never about 
whether there is such a thing as homosexuality, although there's many people who still have a real hypocritical problem trying to grasp that anybody might be different from them. But it was more about the, I would describe it as saying, if you could just lie to me, we could get on just fine. Just pretend to be a straight person who hasn't found the right man or woman yet, and we could be just fine. And I think that was kind of the dividing line on soap. Because the comedy in Three's Company, there will be a point in time where that show will be just as quaint and antiquated as something like Petticoat Junction is today, if you're looking at uh, shows on TV land or METV. Because the whole conceit was that in this particular apartment complex, the owners of the complex were not going to allow a man to share an apartment with with a woman. And the only exception that they would make was that if that man was gay. The owners of that particular apartment complex, both in the Norman Fell character, the original uh, season or two, and Don Knotts later, they just didn't want any hanky-panky going on between unmarried people inside their apartment complex. And somehow in the late 70s and very early 80s, this just made perfect comic sense. At least it made sense to my parents and my household. But the reason why the fodder for the comedy, even with a character who um, was pretending to be gay, wasn't problematic wasn't because of the gay part, it was because of the pretending part. They were okay because of the pretending. And the fact that he was actually sort of a womanizer was funny to them. As opposed to if he had been, you know, a gay male who was not in any way uh, manipulative of other people or playing fast and loose with concepts of consent, that wouldn't have been okay. In other words, somebody with no character flaws but who was gay was severely problematic Somebody who was straight but with character flaws, including lying about his sexuality, was not problematic. This is the concept of parental controls that I'm getting to. I just tried not to be a hypocrite. In my household, when my kids were growing up, we didn't have, at least I don't believe we had standards that were that, that, that arbitrary. I'm quite sure if I were to at some point, you know, put the microphone away and have an informal interview with my kids, there might be examples of hypocrisy that I'm just missing. That kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. And you never know what's going to set a parent off. When we get to movies, I'll talk about that in just a second. But I'm just interested in that juxtaposition between Three's Company and Soap and what it means. And then as a, as a grown-up, for want of a better word, I sort of rebelled against that and said, we're not going to exercise a prior restraint banning of a show, even if I don't like the characterization of some characters in the show. And I think probably my mom's bigger fear was that the Billy Crystal character in the TV show Soap wouldn't be problematic, and that she was probably opposed to normalization. Which I think gets us back to kind of what's been going on in the country since at least 2015, all the way till now, that what people are, you know, being confrontational, violent, exercising crass political machinations over, is some sort of last-ditch religious right attempt to avoid any sort of normalization. That's my story with Soap, and it's why I have never in my life, even till now, seen an episode of the the uh, sitcom Soap end to end. I also have never seen the movie American Graffiti. And it's a little bit hard for me to understand why, based on everything I know, that my parents would have drawn the line at American Graffiti. Why that was the one movie growing up that I can recall that was just a place we were never going to go. And I've got a theory about it, but... I'll share that in a second, but I think it, I wanted to heighten the irony here as well to make an even more kind of uh, outrageous comparison than the Three's Company versus Soap example. 
I want to line up Animal House next to American Graffiti. These are two movies that both started with an A. Both 1970s American films uh, with comedy in them. More comedy than drama, as a matter of fact. Both coming from that entire kind of realm of, of National Lampoon, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. That part of our popular culture. I mean, neither American Graffiti nor Animal House were in any way sort of avant-garde or risky or threatening or foreign. They were both popular, right? But my mom accidentally took my younger sister and me. I would have been the summer before eighth grade, I'm guessing, kind of right in that ballpark, and my sister would have been in elementary school. Took us to the movies one afternoon, and we went to a twin cinema, where there were only two choices. I don't remember what was showing in the other theater, but whatever it was, my mom either wasn't interested in, or it was rated R and unacceptable. But you know what? Animal House was rated R too. But somehow she made a mistake, and in her mind... She thought that it was going to be some sort of a film version of Animal Farm. So the George Orwell story brought to life on the big screen. And by confusing Animal Harm and Animal House, we ended up buying tickets and going in. And of course, the person at the box office really had no reason to warn my mom about it. Because if you're an adult parental guardian bringing underage kids into an R-rated movie, that's perfectly acceptable. That's sort of how the rule's supposed to work. And that's what she did, and she was so embarrassed. Well, first, I'm sure, so confused, wondering when the George Orwell part's going to kick in, but so embarrassed once she realized that this was actually not going to be that movie at all, that we didn't leave. I've never really understood why. And as I mentioned a couple of years ago, and in an episode after my mom's death, that was sort of mournfully dealing with some of the stories that I knew I was never going to hear the answer to, I was never going to get the rest of the story, and... And it grieved me then, and it still grieves me now. As I recorded that episode, I decided that maybe the right name for it to have, in light of the circumstances, was telling your stories before it's too late. Inappropriate Conversations number 195. And I guess this is one of the things I'm not going to get to ask my mom. My theory is that she actually enjoyed the comedy of the Animal House movie enough that part of her didn't want to leave because she kind of wanted to see it through. But she was also genuinely embarrassed that she'd kind of gone to the wrong movie with her with her two youngest kids, and we just saw it through. I bring it up only to say that I'm a kid whose mom took him to Animal House, and we saw the movie end-to-end, credits and all. Again, I think waiting until everyone else had left before we left, because she didn't want to be seen leaving Animal House with a crowd of people with her two young kids in tow. But she also was the same mom who just over-the-top, angrily dragged us out of a movie theater that was showing American Graffiti. Now, that story is that back in the mid to late 70s, mid-70s, it was not at all unusual for a new movie from a first-time director or a relatively unknown director to come out and need a boost. And if the movie theaters, uh, if if the movie theater chains, but also the production companies, thought that word of mouth was going to be helpful... They thought they had a pretty good movie on their hands, or maybe they thought they had a bad movie and they needed a great first week box office. They just needed word of mouth. And in the case of American Graffiti, I'm sure that they had shared advanced prints with the uh, with the press to get the film critics going. But they also decided to do a sneak preview. Sometimes sneak previews were well advertised, and sometimes they're not. Now, in today's world... Sneak preview is pretty well advertised. It's kind of hard for Fandango to fake it, even if Fandango wanted to fake it. You know, if you if you check today's listings, uh, you're going to see that 
there's going to be a one-time-only showing in the 7.30 slot of a movie that isn't released yet, you would see it loud and clear. It's just the nature of the way the internet works, and things like IMDb and Fandango reveal this stuff. But sometimes in the 70s, the sneak preview was truly a sneak. It was totally a surprise. And what the movie theater was trying to do was they were saying, if you buy your ticket to the 7.30 of something like Jesus Christ Superstar, you are welcome to stay for the 9.30 Jesus Christ Superstar, because instead of the 7.30 showing that you bought your ticket for, surprise, here's a brand new movie we think is really cool that you want to see. And I think the movie theaters, as an industry, even back then, did a pretty good job of this. They were going to put a PG movie in the sneak slot with another PG movie. I mean, you weren't going to give people the ability to watch a surprise double feature and have one of them be just completely inconsistent with the other. If the uh, sneak preview unadvertised was a horror film, you'd put it with The Exorcist so that somebody who'd bought an R-rated ticket to a scary movie is just getting an extra scary movie if they want it. And to me, the right way to do it is to sell people the ticket to the movie they wanted to go to. They were planning to go to Jesus Christ Superstar. And then let them stay if they want to see this brand new American graffiti thing afterward. And maybe that was how it was intended to work. But for whatever reason, my parents got the four of us in the station wagons. You get this entire production of bringing six people, four of them kids, to the movies. And you've bought the tickets and you've carefully picked the movie to make sure it's it's screened as carefully as your resistance to HBO might imply your screening process would be. And Jesus Christ Superstar was the one that was chosen, and that was what my parents had their hearts set on, and that's what they wanted us to watch. So part of it was just that juxtaposition, that surprise of expecting a movie musical and getting American Graffiti instead. That was part of it. The other part of it was that I'm sure my parents went through this thought process when they realized, okay, this is not going to be the movie we thought it was. So... It's a PG movie, it's a high school film set in the 1950s, maybe it's going to be okay, and they watched for a while, and what really did it was a scene somewhere early on, I have no idea, I've never seen American Graffiti all the way through, to know, where a character moons another character, a male butt in a window as a form of a prank, and male ass on the cinema screen was it. My mom was out of there, and all four kids of us in tow, and I've since never seen American Graffiti. So, again, perhaps there was some sense, some concern, some rigid rule in my mom's head about male nudity. There was just a place she wasn't going to go, period. I recently re-listened to parts of Inappropriate Conversations number 109, Eulogy for Homophobia. And the reason I did it was that as I looked at the blurb for that particular entry, I couldn't exactly recall what stories were being told there. And... I know I've got some new listeners, both from the uh, most recent edition of Pride 48, uh, the New Orleans Expo in this case, and also just from party going and sharing the podcast business card from time to time. And I, I know I've shared that business card with some people in recent months for whom that episode title might be intriguing. And I just thought to myself, you know, if that was, if I put myself in the shoes of a brand new listener, what's, what story's being told there? And one of the stories that I told there, and it's conjunction with it, it also works with the Oscars because that was the episode where I named uh, Freddie Mercury as a different drummer. So I was curious as about, well, his, was my point of view about Freddie Mercury years before the Bohemian Rhapsody movie was, was made? Uh, does it line up pretty well? And, you know, again, it does. But one of the stories I told there was that somewhere in my own personal upbringing and maybe my own personal homophobia and apparently 
an environment that had its fair amount of homophobia in it. Somewhere along the way, I'd acquired, uh, early on, Queen's A Night at the Opera, one of the first two albums I ever bought. Probably the first album I ever went to the store with my own money and paid cash for to get. And Elton John's Greatest Hits, among other things. I would later add to the collection um, Black Sabbath, We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll, Rush, the live album All the World's a Stage, and uh, Led Zeppelin IV. I mean, I... I expanded the palette pretty quickly, Supertramp, Breakfast in America. But at that point in time, two of the most prominent albums, two of my top fives were uh, Elton John Greatest Hits Volume 1 and um, Queen, A Night at the Opera. And I sort of marveled at the fact that somehow the homophobic environment that I was in, whether that be in junior high school or in my home or in my church, led me to get rid of that Elton John album. I have bought Elton John Greatest Hits Volume 1 on vinyl twice. I rebought it when I reconsidered the folly of not owning and listening to music I like because of somebody else's fears about things about the performer that have nothing to do with me. But uh, my parents were also very uncomfortable with Rod Stewart. And I remember getting questions from my father about whether Rod Stewart was a an okay album to have. And I don't think my father was being anywhere near as judgmental as my mom appeared to be about the TV show Soap. His concern may have been more that my musical taste seemed so broad that elements of my musical taste could be perceived as the kind of thing that you could get bullied over and not wanting your son to be the target of that kind of bullying. But, you know, to be honest with you, I don't exactly even know what to do with the sexuality of Rod Stewart. You know, it, uh, he was simultaneously dating and marrying some of the supermodels of the era and also somebody about whom uh, the fluidity of his sexual preferences were were a constant topic of discussion whenever popular music was being addressed, either, you know, over the dinner table from time to time or watching programs like the Midnight Special on Friday nights, like a music program, music performance program. Uh, Rod Stewart has been on there more than once. I remember his performance of You Wear It Well, I guess it was, and... Uh, I was only joking. might be one of my favorite moments of live performance in the history of the Midnight Special. So Rod Stewart, another one of those characters that would appear from time to time in my music collection, and I knew was doing so with, if not parental disapproval, some degree of parental questioning. Now, my sense of parental controls, the way I exercised things, was I was very careful about myself, controlling what it was that I had sitting on a bookshelf available for my kids to encounter, or coming into the home streaming via either the internet or magazine subscription delivery. And the other thing I tried to do was always have a very open mind and and was always prepared to have frank conversations about whatever might be confusing, whether that be a world religion book or something like that, or things I was researching for this podcast, because this podcast goes back enough years that there were still teenagers in the house back then. The Probably the only thing I think I did that would be as extreme as some of the policing of television that my parents did was the net nanny. You know, back in the day, late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet was really taking off and, and home usage of the internet was becoming more and more common, uh, we employed for a period of time software that could be described as a net nanny. And even that I didn't take terribly, terribly seriously because I kind of was aware of the fact, just as an adult user of the computer, of a web browser with a net nanny available, that 
it wasn't consistently good either that it would often, you know, as softwares will do, right? Uh, it would often filter out things that made no sense to be filtered out or allow in things that you would have expected the net nanny to take care of for you. Even then, I knew not to trust how perfect it was. And for a chunk of the high school years of my son, college years of my daughter, we just didn't employ a net nanny at all. I said I'd mention books, and I'll do it very briefly just because I said I would do it, because I want to get to The Different Drummer, because The Different Drummer today poses another mystery along these lines of which things my parents were uncomfortable with and which things they were totally comfortable with. And it's kind of a, it, it still to this very day leaves me with questions. I can recall my, my mom being extremely worried about books related to world religions. And it was interesting that in one case, she actually banned one of her own books. Now, she wasn't worried about me picking up a copy of Harold Robbins' The Betsy and reading it, but she was worried about me learning about Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, part of the reason that that's important, there's a, there's a piece of understanding I'll provide there, and that I don't have a lot of solid memories of the late 1960s. So things like the Moonies in the 70s were a bit of a mystery to me. I didn't feel I was the kind of person who was susceptible to a cult anyway. You know, later as an adult, I remember having a an employee in my store who was very into Scientology and wanted me to be into Scientology too, and she quickly realized she was completely wasting her time. But the American experience of Hinduism has a lot to do with you know some of the uh, Hare Krishna type stuff. And having gone through that experience, I think my mom probably shut down completely to any notion that it was safe for a traditional conservative, mainstream American Christian to be learning about Eastern religion, that she'd probably seen firsthand people in youth groups before I was old enough to know there even was such a thing as a church youth group, uh, go down a dangerous and risky path, a drug-related path included, by sort of the expanding your mind with um, opening up your mind to Eastern thoughts, all that type of stuff. And although I don't think my parents had a prejudice toward people from Asia, but there were prejudices that were easy to see and things they didn't fully overcome, and religion was one of them. When I finally did get to read a world religion textbook, it was after I was graduated from high school and out and gone to college, and where you have humanities requirements in college anyway was the perfect opportunity. My freshman year, first semester, I made my I made sure I got into a world religion, introduction to religion coursework. And it was the first time that was really available to me because as a second semester, so the last part of my senior year in high school, I remember there being stern discussions, careful considerations about whether the book Siddhartha, the fictional book by Herman Hess, would be permitted. That my mom was very curious as to why a high school would even allow that to be on the reading list, let alone confused by why her son would have chosen it. Candidly, I will tell you, I chose it because it was the shortest book and number of pages on that reading list. <laughs> but it also tied into the fact that if I wasn't going to be allowed to read the facts from a world religion textbook my mom owned, that was the one book that was not allowed, then I would read the fiction instead. But it's an interesting thing to be rebelling about, because my parents didn't have any problem if I got on the bicycle and rode myself what I now realize is about a four-mile journey on bike, three or four miles on bike, to get to the nearest used bookstore and buy anything I wanted to from the science fiction or fantasy section. When I realized that my parents had copies of The Joys of Sex, uh, The Joy of Sex and More Joy of Sex, and I wasn't going to be permitted 
probably. I didn't ask, but I wasn't going to be permitted to read their copies of those books. Uh, the used bookstore provided me the opportunity to buy my own. You know, so I, anything I brought back from the used bookstore, I think was viewed, was, was not, it wasn't policed. It was, you're just doing some reading. And I can remember, you know, one book in particular that actually kind of shook me a little bit. It's the book that became the movie Dead Ringers. It was released under the name Twins. And I was online, an online forum years ago, where somebody asked, you know, if they'd ever been, I don't I forget how they worded it. Had you ever been offended by a book? Had you ever, you know, rage quit reading a book or whatever? And the only example I could have, because I tend to be a completist. So usually if I start something, I finish something. And I did finish the book Twins. But it got to a moment near the end of the book with twin gynecologist doctor brothers engaging in an incestuous act of 69 that caught me so by surprise uh, that I, because I wasn't, from a sexual orientation perspective, I wasn't expecting that that was a possibility. Most of the book, they were competing for the interests of, of a female patient, which itself, I realize, as an older person, is highly problematic. But I got to that particular scene, having learned enough from books like The Joys of Sex to know what I was reading, that I sort of shut the book and threw it across the room. And I told those friends on an online forum that I never had never rage quit reading a book, but I actually had thrown a book across the room in just um, shock, I guess would be the word for it. Uh, at some point when you're in the last two or three chapters and, and a plot twist like that comes up, you almost have to see it through. It's worse if that's the last page you've read in many ways. There was more to the story to be told, I guess. My point is, is that the policing of books was far less um, aggressive than the policing of movies or television shows. And even in the context of the policing of books, I encountered far more adult ideas from my parents' books than I think I would have from even the movies that HBO would have shown if we had been more relaxed about the true meaning of cable television. I guess the uh, the one through line here is that male sexuality was viewed as problematic to some degree by either one or both of my parents. And I was always a little bit careful about how to navigate that anyway, because I tend to be a little bit naive about some of these things. I realize now as a middle-aged adult, I'm not naive about very much, truth be known. But I can remember a time, and I'm pretty sure this is true, although... My memories are so extremely fuzzy, but I think the family was on a trip. I believe we were in Tennessee. The reason it's so questionable is that I, the timeline doesn't work out. It is actually factually false to say that at one point when I was a young kid, our family visited Dollywood. Not true. We visited some sort of non-Silver Dollar City, but Silver Dollar City-ish amusement park of sorts in Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, somewhere like that on a family trip. And part of the reason my memories about the actual amusement park itself and that experience are fuzzy is that my dominant memory of that was that for whatever reason in the small hotel we were staying in, motel we were staying in, my parents had adjoining rooms. So there was one room that the four kids were in and there was another room that the parents were in. And it was one of those adjoining room situations where once you've all checked in, there's a door between the two hotel rooms that you don't have to leave and go out into the parking lot area to go from one room to another. You can go from one room to another within this door that's close to the outer facing door. And I remember at one point being in an argument with my brother about what we were watching on TV. We'd started watching something. I think he decided it was going to be too scary for my younger sister, so he switched it. I wanted to see it through. I was going to tell on him to my parents. 
And when I knocked on the bedroom door of their hotel room, the answer I got was disproportionately angry and very surprisingly intense. Now, as an adult with kids, I totally understand what was going on there. Parents had genuine concerns that I was about to walk in in a completely different kind of amusement park situation and um, reacted with appropriate force to make sure that I didn't stumble into something that would be an indelible memory. But their response took, took me so off guard. Their sense of parental controls about my experience of their own behavior kind of wiped out any memory of the point and place and time and even date specifics of that event. I'll just say that it sounds a lot like the kind of thing that later became Dollywood. So for want of a better word, I'm going to make a transition from yeah, inconsistent parent parental controls, things our parents tried to keep from us, some that strike me now as comically inappropriate, just unnecessary. Soap is a sitcom. Others totally make sense that the whole point of having an adjoining room was to have some privacy, and I was interfering with that privacy. I get it. But did we visit some previous version of the property that Dolly Parton would later buy and turn into her own park in uh, eastern Tennessee and calling it Dollywood? I know for a fact that if that park opened in 1986, the events I'm describing happened a good 10 years sooner. So there you go. But it's not like the uh, amusement park area was built from scratch. Dolly Parton bought something and made it her own. I use this as a point of transition to do two things. I want to promote not just the Pride 48 event in August live in New Orleans, but also the live streaming event for Pride 48 that's coming up in June, and to introduce our different drummer in the context of shared content between two Pride 48 podcasts. June. Birds chipping, insects buzzing, the start of summer, children playing, summer brides having their wedding, the mowing of the lawns. Now, what have we forgotten? I'll tell you what you've forgotten. You've forgotten the Pride 48 June event. Don't forget it. 2019. Ooh, your favorite year June. June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. From home live streaming. Listen live. Stream your podcast. Join in the chat room. Go to Pride48.com for more information. It's stunning to me. It's great. Greg, uh, I'm sort of calling him out on this. I'm sort of told him that I was going to be doing this on a on a tweet. Um, I'd be curious to know his take on this. If you haven't listened to a lot of uh, Greg's stuff on the Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, one of the things he does um, is talk about different drummers and, and brings music into the conversation. Um, and I'd ask him on Twitter if Dolly had ever been one of his different drummers, and I wasn't doing that to suggest that she should have. I was just curious to know if he, what sort of back history he talked about her 
Um, I mean, Dolly's a religious person, uh, despite what I've just said in terms of her wanting to live the life she wanted to live and be the person she wants to be. And if that means she looks like a floozy, that's going to be her choice, you know, and she supports the right of people to be who they are, including the LGBT community and has, has said so repeatedly. And again, this song is just like, you know, like this is who I am. Damn it. Take it or leave it. You know, I just, I'd love that. I love that spirit. I was delighted to hear that George of Atlanta had asked me a question on his podcast. It doesn't always happen, but it's the kind of things that do happen when there is sort of a network level of affiliation and participation across podcasts. I appeared live in Pride 48 in 2015 with a recording of Walk the Earth. Walk the Earth number 30 was released in September of that year. And of course, last year, 212 intersections in the neighborhood was performed live with Nicole Villacrez from the Greetings from Nowhere podcast. That was broadcast in August, released as a podcast in September of just last year. And among the things that I enjoyed most about last year's show was that half of the North and South of Things podcast, Mark, did come, did his podcast live, brought in a little bit of the North and South of Things flavor by having George join via computer. And so there was, uh, while George was a fixture on the in the chat room for much of the weekend, he was actually on the video screen and, and live on audio for a portion of, of Mark's show for the, the Laughing Buddhist show on his podcast, Scooter Diaries. I'm hearing that this year both Mark and George may be there, that there should be a Georgian Atlanta presence at uh, Pride 48 in New Orleans, and we may get a North and South of Things podcast as well. So to that extent, there's a connection. I don't think it's at all unusual for George to say, hey, got a point of view about this new Dolly Parton album. And it occurs to me that I don't know whether Greg has ever named Dolly Parton as a different drummer. And I, when I heard that, began thinking, well, first, I mean, I knew, of course, that Dolly Parton had not been named as a different drummer, and I knew why. And the reason isn't that she was in any way forbidden. Our family was kind of indifferent to her. If you get to the in-laws, right, to my mom's relatives in particular, but to some degree my dad's relatives, uh, great aunts and uncles, they were a fan of the Porter Wagner show. I can remember seeing Dolly Parton on the Porter Wagner show from time to time. I may have inaccurate memories of a guest appearance on Hee Haw. I don't know. But things like Porter Wagner and Hee Haw uh, were a regular part of a lot of the TV watching of my mom's aunts and uncles and of my father's relatives on his side of the family. It wasn't that unusual, right? So I was aware of who Dolly Parton was going all the back, all the way back to the era of the Porter Wagner show. And at no point had anybody ever promoted her to me or dissuaded me from paying attention to what she was doing. Meaning that I've spent most of my adult life being consistently surprised by Dolly Parton. That there's so much I don't know. When Whitney Houston produced a hit for I Will Always Love You, I don't believe at the time I began stocking that single, and it became one of the best-selling singles that my particular record store ever sold, I don't know if I knew at first that it was a Dolly Parton song. I could have lost a bet on that. I one time had an employee who was a Dolly Parton impersonator and um, was a friend of the family, maybe an uncle, relative, who was an Elvis Presley impersonator. And she really helped us maybe to making the most of the merchandising of our country music section, but more importantly, our sheet music and our karaoke section at the time when most, most of us were trying to figure out how to pronounce the word karaoke. And... So I I had encounters with Dolly Parton along the way. I can remember seeing 9 to 5 in movie theaters. 
It was, in fact, in the same movie theater and on the same screen of the same movie theater that I saw uh, Animal House just a couple years earlier with my mom and my little sister. So Dolly Parton would creep in from time to time, but in surprising ways. And I've got songs by her on my MP3 player that are not by her. Now, I'm not a Whitney Houston fan. I respect her talent, but I don't have I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston on my on my phone. I do have, like, Jolene on my phone from, I believe, Straight No Chaser doing their a cappella singing group version of that and uh, bringing in the best of choral music and sort of a Bobby McFerrin approach to accompaniment. So I've got her that way. I think the one song on my phone right now that is Dolly Parton as the performing artist is uh, the Hard Candy Christmas song. And even then, that song got to my player not because I was aggressive about going out, seeking it, finding it, downloading it, and adding it in. It came to me through Pride 48. I'm pretty sure that it was just one of the things that sharing musical interests with one of the hosts of the Game Night guys, that at some point that's how I became aware of Hard Candy Christmas. My parents have had in their collection a lot of what I would consider to be old-time standard music, including old-time standard country music. I have absolutely no idea why Dolly Parton didn't have a piece of vinyl in their collection. When you consider how many albums she made, how successful the albums those albums were, she's a legitimate star when it comes to music sales, music performance, Grammy Awards, uh, even things like uh, Golden Globe Awards and, and Academy Award nominations. And being, again, a lot more savvy than her persona might lead you to believe in terms of her business holdings, business management. I started off this by introducing what I think might have been my experience with what later became Dollywood. So, and from a Christian perspective, I think that Dolly Parton and I, as George alluded, have a fair amount of overlap in our religious values. So there's something to be said there, too, about a connection between, you know, Dolly Parton and me. These parallel lines with no intersections, I guess, is how I would describe it. And my parents, I don't think, would have been necessarily that offended by her tolerance of gay and lesbian people, of people of color being treated with dignity and respect, the fact that she had a still is married to the person that she married 50-plus years ago, but has also been very open about some of the challenges and struggles she's had and, and things that she either thought or did along the way in her life that posed a threat to that marriage, that none of that, I think, would have been a problem. And I also don't think that there would be a problem with her her entrepreneurial approach either. So I have absolutely no idea why, among the many things that I feel I was shielded from, Dolly Parton might be one of the things that I could name um, as having been shielded from. But from a philanthropy perspective, if you listen to the entire episode that George and Atlanta released, and you know that can be found at uh, georgeandatlanta.podbean.com, GIA episode number 52 is Dolly's Powerful Red Shoes. He, he name-drops some of these details as well, but anybody who's done what she could to put more than a million books in the hands of kids who might not otherwise have the the resources or the parental support to get their hands on those books on their own, you know, that is a very good and positive thing. I would just kind of offer just amusing speculation, just an observation that I have in the past named different drummers. I'll cite three right off the top of my head. Anita Ekberg, Elizabeth Shue, Dana Gillespie, that I have named as different drummers in part, maybe even in a large part, because I found them very sexually attractive. That 
my first memories of them were how attractive they are. And that led to, well, learning more about them. And, you know, Different Drummer is not something I throw out casually. I give it, I give it quite a bit of thought. I don't think I've named somebody a different drummer just because they were cute, for example, right? But when you consider somebody who has the uh, proportions and the unmistakable sexuality of Dolly Parton, it's amazing to me that at no point have I ever really thought of her the same way I think of people who are arguably in the same ballpark proportionally, like Dana Gillespie or Anita Ekberg. Just never really occurred to me. I don't think of Dolly Parton in that way. And I'm probably, I'm just as good with the fact that maybe I only think of her in the sense of her being somebody who has this wonderful track record of tolerance and this wonderful track record of, of philanthropy. George asked me the question in particular in the context of the Red Shoes song from her latest venture, the soundtrack to the movie Dumplin'. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't bought the soundtrack. I don't know that I will buy the soundtrack. But I'm familiar with the song because I saw it on the Grammy Awards telecast. But then again, I probably only saw it on the Grammy Awards telecast because George pre-tweeted his next episode, now still his most recent episode of George in Atlanta, calling out that that was worth watching. He's right that the Red Shoes song was one of the songs that sort of caught my ear. But it caught my ear for a reason that might be surprising. And I think after the Different Drummer segment, I'll close the show with that thought. So my intent was to have personal observations about an artist that I have very few personal connections to. I just did a different drummer segment on Dolly Parton without even hitting Wikipedia as I normally would, saying that she's an American singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, actress, author, businesswoman, philanthropist, known primarily for her work in country music. And after achieving success as a songwriter for others, Parton made her debut album in 1967 and hasn't looked back since. I could have quoted Wikipedia to do all that, but I really wasn't asked to talk about Parton as a different drummer from that perspective, even though this list is classic different drummer material. Somebody who, from the category page on inappropriate conversations, I'll end up checking boxes for more than just music with the work that she has done. Tempted to check the politics box as well, although I doubt that I'll do it. It's just that her outspoken support and defense for people who've been under renewed attack in the last four or five years because of marriage equality, is worth noting that at least it's a consideration to check her for politics. No, the context of this song, Red Shoes, is what really occurred to me. And I'm not the kind of person who could take a suggestion to say, you should think of this person as a different drummer, and then I turn around in the very next episode and do it. But the thing is, this very next episode is a little bit different for a couple of reasons. It comes on something like a six-month hiatus anyway. And also... It connects back to my older sister. So notice that in this podcast, I've talked about my older brother in, in connection with that one vacation. And my younger sister being the person who got to enjoy watching Animal House in the audience with me with a very embarrassed mother, who was more terrified of American graffiti than she was of Animal House, if you tell the story in a sarcastic way. I, was, I haven't mentioned much about my older sister because my older sister has been gone for quite some time. Inappropriate Conversations number 41, Gone and Not Forgotten, came out either in the 1st December or 1st January in the history of the recording of this show. I'm pretty sure it came out in late December of 2010, and it does a pretty good job of telling the story of my sister's death, my relationship with my sister, but one story I'm pretty sure I didn't tell in that particular podcast, because I was already sort of having an emotional reaction to the storytelling as it was, and I'll just let 
Inappropriate Conversations number 41 speak for itself. But there was an element of my sister's funeral that still sticks with me to this day. And it sticks with me for some complex reasons. It's really an interesting thing that I'm normally the kind of person who doesn't typically commit to memory the kind of sermons or messages that get told, or even homilies that get told at moments like weddings and funerals. I kind of expect to not remember them. Because typically when something like a wedding or a funeral is going on, the event itself is bigger than any words that the pastor might decide to share. My sister died after my dad, several years after my dad. Their deaths were in closer proximity to each other now than the present day is to either one of them. It's been that long, right? But when my sister died, the pastor at that particular funeral service was trying to give the family comfort that, and we kind of didn't need, we had no doubt, that my sister's faith was among the strongest of all the members of our family, and that if you have a traditional view of heaven, that there's no doubt we'd have in our minds that our sister was going to be there. And I wouldn't have had any doubt in my mind that my father was going to be there too, although I might have had more naive confidence about that than everybody in the family would have. It depends, right? He was the Roman Catholic representative of our religious stew as a family, and it's not hard to find people on the Arkansas side of our family tree who would have found his Catholicism to be deeply worrisome and problematic. But the pastor was trying to offer some assurances to the family both that my sister was going to be in heaven and that my father was going to be waiting for her there. And he, he told his his version of that as a very you know typical white middle-aged American male, which made it kind of memorable, I guess. It was kind of funny. He told that by quoting the words to a gospel hymn made famous by Mahalia Jackson. I found lyrics online under the, the title of Walk Over God's Heaven. I don't have this song on my phone, but the lyrics uh, on you know Google for Walk Over God's Heaven start with, I got shoes and you got shoes. All God's children got shoes, my Lord. When, when we get to heaven, we're going to put on our shoes. We're going to walk. We're going to talk all over God's heaven. Oh, Lord, heaven. And he's basically saying that that he thought there was maybe something, uh, there was a little bit of dramatic license to the story. You can't say that from his perspective that people have to wear shoes in heaven or there are even shoes to wear in heaven. But he wanted us to understand that he felt like, you know, that that moment of getting to heaven was going to be my father welcoming my sister in and handing her a pair of shoes in the context of this hymn and saying, welcome, here's your shoes. Well, Dolly Parton's song ends with her saying, that if she ever gets to heaven, and she certainly hopes she does, she wants to get there wearing her, not just her shoes, but a particular set of typical Dolly Parton over-the-top, high-heeled, sparkling, red shoes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.